Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray, that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's word. Father, now as we've read your word, we're asking that you would speak to us through it. God, we believe that your word is living and active, meaning that it's in this book and this book alone that you speak to us and that the Holy Spirit actually takes these words and breathes life into them as they enter into our minds and hearts. And so, Lord, we invite you this morning to speak to us, to help us to get a better grasp on who you are, Jesus, and all that you've done for us. Because if we can see that, we will put you first. If we can see that, you will become the treasure of our lives. And that's what we so desperately need. So we pray that you minister to us now from your holy word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church, calisthenics are over. You can be seated. Well, according to the internet, which is perfectly reliable, of course, as adults, we make some 35,000 decisions every single day. Now, obviously, most of those decisions are pretty insignificant. Um, Do I grab my phone or the remote? Do I go for hot coffee or iced coffee? Do we eat at In-N-Out or The Habit? Which that's, some of you are saying In-N-Out. How many of you would go for In-N-Out? Hands up. Thank you, Hank. How many of you would go for The Habit? Wow, okay. All the Santa Barbara natives are like, we have to go for The Habit that started here, In-N-Out. They came here. Have you guys had Mesa Burger, though? Oh, my gosh. Up on the Mesa. Unbelievable. Well, it's too early in the sermon to talk about food, so sorry about that. Some decisions, though, are actually really significant, right? I mean, every once in a while, you make a decision in your life that actually can transform and and change the complete direction or even destiny of your life. Um, I have some friends who, a number of years ago, they were complete strangers, and they were in a Starbucks line, and this young man noticed this really cute blonde in front of him. He thought to himself, I should just try to talk to her. So he went for it. He struck up conversation. That led to him buying her a cup of coffee. That led to them sitting and talking for a while and exchanging numbers. And a couple years later, they were married, and now they've been happily married for several years. That one little decision transformed his future. All the singles are like, forget the picnic. I'm going to Starbucks after church. (laughs) God bless you for your honesty. This morning, I titled this message, The Decision. 
the decision because in the text that we just read together, you and I are going to observe our Lord Jesus Christ making the most difficult decision of his life. Now, it might be weird for you to hear me talking about a decision being difficult for Jesus. After all, Jesus is God in human flesh. How can a decision be difficult for God to make? Well, that's a great question. And it gets to the heart of our understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth actually is. Although Jesus is fully God, church, it is equally true that Jesus is fully man. And as a man, Jesus made decisions just like you and I do. And at times, some of those decisions were extremely difficult for him to make. If the transfiguration that we studied back in Luke chapter 9 sort of pulled back the veil for us and let us see the deity of Jesus Christ, then here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are having the veil pulled back once again and we're able to see the humanity of Jesus Christ. It is here in the garden, perhaps more than any other place in the Bible, where we come face to face with the humanness of our Lord. He sweats. He trembles. He cries out in agony and desperation. Let's calibrate ourselves for a moment. Where are we in the life of Christ in this passage that we've just read? Well, you need to know that we are in the final hours of Jesus' earthly life. If you were here last week, we studied where Jesus celebrated the Passover with the disciples and he instituted communion or the Lord's Supper. He is in the holy city of Jerusalem now. He has set up communion with his disciples and he is literally hours away from being betrayed and then being crucified. This is the night before Jesus dies on Calvary's hill. And as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, He looks at his disciples and he asks them to do one thing. He says, pray. Verse 40, pray that you may not enter or fall into temptation. What what does that mean? What is Jesus asking them to pray for? Well, simply put, Jesus is saying, pray that you don't shipwreck your faith. Because this hour of trial that was coming on Jesus was going to be the most difficult for him, but the most difficult for anybody who professed Jesus as Lord. And he says, pray for the strength to make it through. See, Jesus knew about all of the ancient prophecies regarding his life. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed by Judas. Jesus knew that within hours, all of his closest friends would desert him. In fact, over in Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus in this context says to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus says, pray. Pray for strength. Pray for endurance in this hour of temptation or trial. Now, in the other Gospels, we learn that Jesus took his inner three, his core, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further into the garden than the rest of the disciples. But then here in Luke's Gospel, eventually we see that Jesus left them to go in further still. Verse 41 says he went about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and he prayed. And church, here is his prayer. 
in all of its gut-wrenching anguish. Verse 42 of Luke 22. Here's what it says. Jesus praying, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this prayer, we see the anguish of the Son. In this hour of trial, crying out to His Father for help. But we should not overlook the anguish of the Father here in this text as well. Every parent in this room will tell you there is nothing worse in a parent's life than having to witness your own children suffering. Even if the suffering is minimal. I mean, my older son Judah... He hates getting shots. Complete uh, terror every time he has to get a shot. And it's hard to even watch him struggle and scream and cry and beg us to deliver him from getting a shot. It's so bad, in fact, that any time that I have a doctor's appointment or my wife has a doctor's appointment, his first question is, do I have to get a shot? We're like, it's not always about you, son. (laughs) No, you're not getting a shot. This is about mommy right now. Are you sure they're not going to give me a shot? You promised, dad, you promised. And he starts freaking out like he's going to have an anxiety attack in his car seat. But as a father, it's so difficult to see your children suffering. And for any parent in this room who's really had to watch your child suffer, perhaps even unto death, I can't even imagine. I mean, there are no words. But this is the moment that we're, we're reading about this morning. God the Son in absolute anguish. God the Father with his heart ripped in his chest. But like the parent who lets their child endure that shot in the moment because they know it's going to produce a greater good, God the Father with a broken heart allows his son to suffer in the garden, and suffer on the cross because ultimately he knew that the suffering of the Son would lead to glory. The Father knows how the story will end. Now I want you to see that the the prayer is really, really short. Actually, it's just one verse. But it is a powerful prayer. There are two elements to this prayer. First, we see supplication. Supplication, meaning Jesus is requesting what he wants, right? So the first half of the prayer is Jesus saying, Father, if it is possible, if you are willing, would you let this cup pass from me? He's supplicating. The second part of it is submission. So again, supplication, this is what I want. The second part is submission, he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, of course, this is a perfect model for our own prayer lives, especially when you and I are going through difficulty, when we're going through trial, that you and I would be a people who are not afraid to come to our Father and say, God, this is what I want. I'm praying for deliverance, or I'm praying for grace, or I'm praying for mercy. I'm praying for help in this time of need. However, after saying that, we need to be a people who, like Jesus, are able to say, nevertheless, not what I want but what you want. 
And the reason why Jesus could pray that way again is because he knew that his father had his best interest at heart. And Jesus knew that the father could see the end from the beginning. And that's the same confidence that you and I need to walk in. My son, Jace, my younger son, has a hatred for freeways, (laughs) of all things. An absolute hatred of freeways. And I think it's because we commuted to Santa Barbara for five and a half months before we lived here. So on-ramp to freeway meant miserable drive for two and a half hours. So he he can't understand now that freeways can be practical in the short run too. So every time we're driving through Santa Barbara and we leave up here, up in Nolita, and we're going to go down south, we enter the 101 right there, and Jace's response is, no, not the freeway again. And we go, Jace, it's okay. We're, we're going to get to the beach faster if we go this way. And he throws a fit because he can't, he can't understand that, that the freeway doesn't equal misery right now. Although he thinks it does, it's ultimately going to work out for something better for him because we'll get to where he wants to go faster. And church, that's the way it is with our Father in heaven. The wise person says like Jesus, not my will, your will be done. I mean, it looks to me right now like the freeway is a terrible idea. But you know what, Dad? If you think the freeway is best, I'm going to trust you. And when we pray that way, when we live that way in faith, it's going to work out for our best interest. So this is a great model for our own prayer lives. But church, I want us to see something more significant. What we're reading about in the life of Jesus, yes, it it shows us a good model for prayer, but more significantly what it does is it teaches us about Jesus. Passages like this push you and I into deep reflection on the person of Jesus Christ. We know from passages like John 1 that Jesus is God. But we also know from that very same passage that that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that although he was God, he is also man. In the incarnation, when Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, guess what happened? Jesus assumed a human nature. Without ceasing to be God, he took to himself a human nature, and all that that entails And he became like us in every single way. Now, in the modern Western church, what we have done is we have not given a lot of attention to the humanity of Jesus Christ. In the modern Western church, we're very concerned about the deity of Christ, about proving that Jesus is God. And a lot of that is reactionary against secularism in the last couple of centuries, where people are assaulting the idea that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is somehow God. And so the church has gone through great lengths of arguing for and defending the deity of Jesus Christ, which is great, and we should do that. But the collateral damage from that is that many of us in the modern Western church have not given much attention to the humanness of Jesus Christ. Jesus became like us in every way. What this means is that Jesus not only shared our physiology, but he even shared our psychology, and we see this in our text. 
Yes, Jesus had a human body, but listen, he had a human mind, human emotions, and a human will too. This is what the scriptures teach us. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in strength and in favor with God and man. Translation, Jesus grew up like every other little Jewish boy, yet without sin. This also explains why Jesus could say in Mark 13, 32, that he did not know the hour of his own return. Now, this might be unusual for you to think about Jesus this way this morning. Perhaps you've always imagined Jesus as he walked the earth as knowing everything there is to know about everything from the second he got to planet earth, as if he had no learning curve, as if he was sitting drawing Newtonian physics on the boarding kindergarten class. But church, did you know this isn't the way that the scriptures teach us to think about Jesus of Nazareth? Of course, as it pertains to his divinity, Jesus knew all things. But as it pertains to his humanity, Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding. Now, a lot of you are like, hold on, insert brain-exploding emoji now. And that's okay. That's okay. Pastor and author David Mathis wrote this. It is a great mystery beyond our experience and understanding and beyond what we will ever know as mere humans. But where it leads for those who call him Lord is not ultimately to confusion, but to worship. Jesus is one truly spectacular person. He is fully God, and he is fully man. Would we want to fix our eternal honor and worship on one who was not utterly unique? Jesus had a human mind. But notice in our text, we see this example of his human will at work too in the garden. Jesus says to the Father, remove this cup from me. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He obviously isn't speaking about the divine will. He's speaking about his human will, not as I will, but as you will. Elsewhere we read John 6, 38, Jesus saying, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now church, this morning, and if you're a visitor, we don't do this every week, but this morning we are swimming in the deep end of the theological pool and we have no floaties. (laughs) We are. This is deep, deep mystery. But this is why we are so fortunate to have 2,000 years of Christian thought in the church's tradition to help keep us on the path. It's sort of like Angel's Landing in Zion, the final ascent up Angel's Landing. If you've ever hiked Angel's Landing, you do a pretty grueling hike, but you get to sort of a first summit which is beautiful in and of itself, and you're already a little bit freaked out. But from there, you go on to the final ascent, and it gets so gnarly that the trail actually becomes really narrow, and there is a sheer cliff a thousand feet on your left, and there's a sheer cliff a thousand feet on your right. And when you research Angel's Landing, because you're like, this looks a little hairy, you actually realize people have fallen off and died. So it's really scary. But what they've done is they've driven some metal stakes in the ground along the trail, and they have a chain going there. And it helps you to stay on that straight and narrow path, even when it gets really treacherous 
and really dangerous. Now, for integrity's sake, I need to confess to you that we didn't hike that final ascent when we went to Angel's Landing a couple summers ago. My wife and I were hiking, and we got all the way up to that first summit. It was like 100 degrees out. It was super hot. And uh, we got there, and I'm looking at that next part of the journey, and I'm like internally freaking out. I'm like, wow, this looks really, really, yeah, that's what it looks like. So we're looking at that, and I'm thinking, I'm already tired. I'm dehydrated. This looks really gnarly. But my wife, when we got to that first summit, just continues on, and she's going up toward this. And of course, as the husband, I have to be brave. So I'm like, yeah, let's do this, babe. Let's go. But we started going, and we're going up the ascent a little bit. And she stops, and she goes, you know, I kind of feel like I should turn around. I don't have the right shoes on for this. My legs are tired. And I was like, inside, I'm going, yes, yes. But on the outside, I'm like, well, you know, honey, I mean, if that's what you feel like we should do right now, I mean, and she's like, well, you know, I just don't feel good about this. And my kids need me. I'm like, you know what? You're so right, honey. Our kids totally need you. You know, listen, if you don't want to do it, honey, I'll suffer with you. We'll go back. And we went back to that lower summit and took pictures from there. But that's what the thought life of our church is like. Our church's tradition is like. Because when you get into these deep, mysterious waters theologically, it's so helpful to be able to look back at what the church has taught us about the deep things of God. What has the church taught us about who Jesus is? This is the historical confession of the church, that Jesus is one person with two natures, divine nature and a human nature. And again, what that means is that Jesus in his humanity has a human body a human mind, a human heart, and a human will. Well, thank you, Pastor, for the theological lesson this morning. Why does this matter? Let me tell you why it matters. Gregory Nazianzus, who was one of the Desert Fathers, 4th century, one of the most brilliant theologians and gifts to the church over the last 2,000 years, Gregory Nazianzus, made this accurate conclusion. He said, that which he has not assumed he has not healed. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. In other words, Jesus came to save human nature, which was corrupted and distorted by the fall. And only those parts of human nature that were joined to or united to the divine life of Jesus could actually be saved, could actually be healed, could actually be restored. And guess what, church? Gregory rightly knew that what you and I need is not just the healing of our bodies, but we also need our corrupted minds healed, our broken hearts, our wandering wills rescued too. And Jesus assumed all of that at the incarnation so that he could deliver us and save us in our entirety. So we as a church need to safeguard these truths. We as a church need to see this about our Lord Jesus here because again, it matters for our salvation. Back to our text now, the other gospels tell us that Jesus prayed this prayer not just once, but he prayed it three different times. How does the Father respond to his request? Well, verse 43, he sends an angel to strengthen him. An angel to strengthen him. I mean, I wonder what the angel said to Jesus. What words could that heavenly messenger 
have come to deliver to Jesus, the Son of God, in his hour of trial, that would have actually strengthened him? Well, we don't know, but here's what we do know. Regardless of what the angel said to him, the fact that the angel was sent to strengthen him and not pull him out of this trial meant for Jesus that the Father was saying, no. The Father was saying, we're going to continue. The Father was saying, this is the path that you will take. The Father said no. Now church, it's popular in some circles of the church to falsely teach that as long as we're really godly people, that God the Father will give us everything that we ask. Sometimes this form of teaching is called the Word of Faith Movement. And again, the idea is that whatever you ask God, if you have enough faith and if you believe and you speak it into existence, the Father will deliver. And so if you don't receive the healing, if you don't get a promotion in the company, if the noisy neighbors don't move out from next door, then the conclusion is that there's something wrong with you. And there are many churches that teach that. That maybe the problem is you don't have enough faith. Maybe the problem is is that there's some sort of sin in your life that you're not aware of, or maybe you are and you're trying to harbor it, and that's why God's holding back this blessing. Let me ask you a question this morning, church. Did Jesus lack faith? Absolutely not. He's perfect. Was there some hidden sin in the life of Jesus that was preventing him from getting what he was asking? Absolutely not. And yet the Father said no. But here's the key. Jesus accepted that. Because again, like I was saying earlier, Jesus knew that the Father has his best interest at heart, and so he trusted him. The Father knew that not only would the cross bring about the salvation of his people, but the cross, listen, was the pathway to Jesus' ultimate glory. Did you know that? That suffering would bring about glory in his life. Here's what Philippians 2, 8 through 11 teaches. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, see, after the suffering, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Father knew This temporary pain and suffering is going to lead to an eternal weight of glory. And church, you need to know something about your own suffering. The same is true for you. The same is true for me. Here's what the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 8, 16, and 17. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and here's the connection, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Church, the point then is this, that going through our lives, it's not about avoiding all suffering. It's not about avoiding all hardship, but rather it's about remaining faithful in the midst of our suffering, remaining faithful in the midst of our trials, knowing that God will ultimately work your situation out for his glory and for your good. Now, knowing that doesn't make your suffering any easier. Well, it probably makes it easier, but it doesn't remove it. Notice that Jesus knew that, 
but he began to sweat great drops of blood. The agony intensified. The thought of what was ahead was so overwhelming for Jesus that he was sweating great drops of blood, as it were. Church, picture the scene this morning. Jesus on his knees in the garden, trembling, crying out in prayer, sweating blood down his face. Unable to stand, he falls to his knees. He trembles, he shakes, he sweats, he cries out. He faces his demons. Or more specifically, he faces the devil himself. So here's the question for us. Why the agony? Why such great distress for our Lord in Gethsemane? Well, it's because as Jesus looked into his very near future, here's what he saw, church. Verse 42, he saw the cup. The cup, what is that? This is so important for us to get. The cup in verse 43 is an allusion to the Old Testament that speaks about the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17. The prophet says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is what Jesus is referencing. You know, oftentimes when we think about the suffering of our Lord, we think about the physical side of things. We think about the beating. We think about the crown of thorns. We think about his beard being torn. We think about him being nailed to the cross. And certainly he suffered physically. But the real agony, the real distress in Gethsemane was not what he was suffering physically. It was what Jesus would endure spiritually for the sake of you and me. Jesus pleaded with his father to remove the cup of his wrath from him. In other words, Jesus was saying, Dad, if there is any other way to save our people, can we take that route? And of course there wasn't. And so at the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him, church, we might become the righteousness of God. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this some 800 years before when he said that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he says. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus would make payment and full payment for the sins of his people. And he would experience the full wrath of God for you and for me. Every judgment you read about in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, did you know that that is just a preview of the coming judgment and a preview of what Jesus experienced on the cross for us? The flood in Noah's day? the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of those things are just previews of what our Lord endured on the cross. And it was this horror 
The horror of standing for the first time in all of eternity, not as an object of the Father's love, but as an object of God's judgment. That was what Jesus repulsed from in the garden. The idea of being cursed by his Father. The idea of being crushed by his Father. Being judged for sin that he didn't commit. It's no wonder this decision was hard. It's no wonder that Jesus in the garden is going back and forth and there's anguish in his soul. There's no sense this morning, church, in asking, what would I have done? This cup could never be yours. It was his and his alone. And for you and for me, he drank every last drop of it. So let's conclude here with a question that should, be, should matter to us, a question of relevance. So uh, where are we at in this story? It's a fair question. Answer, we're with the disciples. We're sleeping when we should be praying. We're unable to live up to his command. We shouldn't be too hard on them though. After all, they're humans just like us. It was late at night. They were tired. They were exhausted from all of the agony and sorrow. But it is instructive for us to notice this morning that this decision of Christ here in the garden to submit to the will of his Father is bookended between two stories of the failures of the disciples. First, again, is where Jesus says, just pray with me, pray for me, pray for yourselves. And they slept. And then, of course, right after this episode, when he's arrested, his faithful followers abandon him. But church, rather than being sad this morning, our hearts need to be encouraged. Because family, this is gospel. Family, this is the good news of the scriptures. That although you and I are weak, Jesus is strong. When we succumb to temptation, he resists it. Where we fail, he succeeds. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. More than looking to Jesus as an example to follow in the Garden of Gethsemane, what you and I need to do this morning is just look at Jesus. What I mean by that is that our call to action this morning is really a call to affection. A call to stop right now as we thought about this situation that our Lord was in and just pause, just reflect on the depth of his love, on the perfection of his character, on the glory of his person and his work for you. Because here in the midst of such intense anguish, we see Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect one, facing all of the horrors of hell and yet reaffirming his decision to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for you and me. And what that should produce in every single one of us is wonder. What that should produce in every single one of us is worship. And so now what we're going to do 
So we're going to pray and thank the Lord for what he's done for us. And we're going to worship. And we're going to sit in awe of the goodness and the majesty of our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, of all the texts in the New Testament, speaking about the life of your son, Jesus, this is one of the most difficult to think about. Knowing the great lengths that Jesus went through, the suffering, the anguish, the agony that he endured for our salvation. And yet, Lord, I pray today that we are once again finding in our hearts great love for Jesus welling up. That as we think about our own failures, even like the failures of the disciples, but we think about his great love, his perfection, his successes, I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed with love, gratitude, affection. I pray that we would be reminded once again that the story of Jesus and the message of Christianity is not one about what we do, to please you or what we've done to earn your love. The story of Jesus is about what you have done to prove your love for us. What you have done to bring healing to us, to bring salvation to us. And it's about our response to the greatness of your love. And so I pray this morning that all of our hearts would be captured by your grace. All of our hearts would be ravished by this display of love. And I pray that this week we would be a worshipful people, that this week we would find ourselves overjoyed because of the love of our God, and that we would live in light of that every single day for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, church.